I'm Michelle. And I'm Lucy. Welcome to another Cameo episode. These short episodes will be slotted in between the other ones and will cover people who made a fleeting yet tantalizing appearance in other episodes. We don't always have a lot of information about them, so they can't have a full episode of their own, but they're too interesting to abandon completely, and they fill in the gaps and enable us to create as full a picture of the era as we can. And today... Sir Richard Edgecombe. Edgecombe. Hmm. I remember us discussing him. Yeah. Well, not discussing, just... He's been in a couple. Yes. <laughs> he shot past. Yeah, yes. he has. Yeah, always doing the same thing. <laughs> He was born in 1443, and how we know that is quite interesting, but I'll come to that later. Okay. In 1467-68, he was Member of Parliament representing Tavistock in Devon. So we're in the West Country, and we've leapt on a few years. (laughs) (laughs) What happened in the meantime? We assume he got some education. Yeah, he'd have done what they all did, yeah. He was the Ashita... Ashita, Ashita for Devon and Cornwall. What is that? In Bray's episode, we learnt that Ashita deals with the estates of those who die intestate. Ah. Mm. That's without their intestines, I believe. And they were the one. <laughs> and the horror films come up. <laughs> and they were one of the group of people who were investigated for laziness and corruption by oh Henry's council led by Bray. How much did he end up with? We don't know whether Edgecombe was lazy or corrupt, okay. but that was the that was the one of the jobs <laughs> that they particularly looked at because it was a, I think it was particularly open to corruption. In 1471, when Edward returned to the throne after the brief re-emergence of Henry VI, Edgecombe, as a confirmed Lancastrian, had his lands taken from him. But as we've seen many times before. Edward was a forgiving sort of man, yes. and he pardoned Edgecombe in April 72. Again, more fool him. <laughs> Edgecombe later joined the Buckingham Rebellion against Richard III. Oh, dear. In July 1484, Lord Scrope. There is a Scrope in one of Terry Pratchett's books. It sounds Dickensian. Is he a mean, nasty person? Because I'm, pr- I believe Lord Scrope and Terry Pratchett is not a nice person. I don't think he'd, th- he'd think of himself like that. He was he was the mayor of Exeter, and he and seven gentlemen were given orders to quote sit here and determine upon the said treason and to proceed to the execution and judgment against the offenders according to their demerits unquote. Which doesn't sound like innocent until proven guilty, does no. it? It reminded reminded me of the Queen in Alice in Wonderland. You know, execution first, trial later. Yes. Unless it means in execution of their duty. Mm. You know what? It would be difficult to say. I've been learning through another great courses through Audible. And it's mm-hmm. interesting how words that we think mean one thing turn out to mean something completely different. Silly is an example. So in our time period, mm. silly actually means innocent. Yeah. It doesn't mean silly in any way, shape or form. <laughs> no, no. No, it's quite... Um... Quite a nice thing to call somebody. Yes, and prior to that, it was blessed. That's what it meant. Yeah, you find it in the 13th century, them calling the the silly Virgin Mary. Well, that's the oh. blessed Virgin Mary. <laughs> it's not silly in our terms. And then it went from blessed to if you're blessed, then you must be innocent as well, which then led to naive, which then led to silly, which then led to dumb. Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, so execution doesn't necessarily mean execution. There were several completed. Execution quite often meant completed. 
Right, yeah, that's what I thought, the execution of the trial. Yes, of so the completion. In that they were get, getting on and doing it, yes. Yes. But I, it's not something you want to hear as the defendant. No. <laughs> we go no. first to the execution and then to the judgment. Yes. <laughs> hmm. Edgecombe was amongst the offenders. He was accused, alongside other people, of conspiring to send £2,000 worth of tin, worth 30, this is a pound and weight of tin, worth £31, 13 shillings and fourpence. It's always fourpence, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and broadcloth valued at £15 to two of the exiles with Henry. That's Robert Willoughby. We don't know much about Robert Willoughby. I mean, no. yeah, he's, he's, I, the name comes up a lot, but don't, don't know anything about him. Maybe he might make an appearance. Ooh. And Peter Courtney, the Bishop of Exeter. And Edgecombe himself was specifically accused of sending cash. And again, Edgecombe's land and goods were seized. But by that time, he was already with Henry in Brittany. And we know something of his escape from other episodes, because he was at his home in Cothiel. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, Cothiel, Cothelli, on the Tamar Gorge. That's between Devon and Cornwall. Mm -hmm. When the officers caught up with him. And he ran through the woods nearby with Richard's men, quote, fast on his heels, unquote. Ooh. And when it looked as if it might be all be up for him, do you remember what he did? Jumped a cliff. <laughs> no, no, that's the other one. No, he, he, he found a big stone and put his cap on top of it and threw oh. the stone into the river. Yes. And the officers, quote, assumed he drowned. Looking down after the noise and seeing his cap swimming, thereon supposed that he had desperately drowned himself gave over their further hunting, unquote. Man, can you imagine nowadays if a criminal could just do that and get away? <laughs> no. Goodbye, <he's> suckers! <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, they take one look in the water, think, oh, no, hat. No. Home boys. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, he's actually under the hat, breathing in the little <laughs> airspace. I think he was actually hiding behind a bush at the time, wasn't he? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Watching them. Ha, 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 you guys are dumb. Yeah. <laughs> and one of these idiots was Sir Henry Bodrigan. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Edgecombe was pardoned in January 1484. And I don't know if he got his land back this time. If so, it would have helped his family. If not, the pardon was academic since he had no intention of coming back to England with Richard on the throne. And this was all part of Margaret Beaufort's lenient punishment. Because she wasn't entirely deprived of her lands, although they were handed over to her husband. Yes. Which may have been more humiliating, perhaps, I don't know. Possibly, unless she had control. Yeah, she may well have done. <laughs> Edgecombe, like Bray, was in Margaret's household, and they were both pardoned as ah. part of Margaret's thing, yeah. And Edgecombe, as with Giles Dobney, I've <laughs> got to mention him somewhere, <laughs> they were quite an asset to Henry since they were both... Actual soldiers. Okay. And that, yeah, that's quite, quite handy. <laughs> yes. Because not everybody went over there was. No. Edgecombe fought at Bosworth and was knighted after the battle. And after that, political posts and rewards poured in for, quote, service overseas and at our late victorious field to their great charge, labour and jeopardy. You would think you would trust people who gave up everything they had to come possibly fight for you, possibly die for you. Or possibly just stay in Brittany for, for the forever. rest of their lives. Yeah. yeah. Like that would be a huge gamble and you'd have to, I don't know, I'd feel loyalty to them. And presumably they've all left their, their family behind. Yeah. To take whatever consequences oh, are geez, coming. Oh, jeez, yes. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, that'd be interesting, actually, to look at the families who did get left behind. Yeah. He was made controller of the royal household, knight of the body, chamberlain of the exchequer for life. Although life in this case was nine days since, not that he died, <laughs> but just over a week later, Sir Richard Guilford took over the role oh. as exchequer for life. They discover that he could not count. We'll make you exchequer. <laughs> One, <laughs> ten, seventeen. Yes, a look of panic might have crossed his face. <laughs> he thought, really, maths is not my thing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There's more here than there is there. Is that what you want? <laughs> <laughs> he was given a whole lot of jobs in Cornwall. And he was given land, including Totnes Castle, which had been the property of Lord Zooch. Uh, it's just a pleasure saying Lord Zooch, isn't it? Zooch. And some land previously owned by Francis Lovell. And it was presumably while he was fulfilling these roles in Cornwall that he chased Sir Henry Bodegren off a cliff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's that way round. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, through Edgecombe's will, we discover that he took over several of the Bodegren estates. So, nice bit of... Divine retribution there. <laughs> in 1485, he was one of the witnesses to the inquiry leading to the papal dispensation for the marriage between Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. And it's because he had to include some biographical facts that we know when he was born and the oh. fact that he married a woman called Jane. Oh, hello, Jane. Yes, yes. yeah, and goodbye. That's all we hear. Oh. Don't know whether that was prior to moving to Brittany or, or, or after. Henry and Elizabeth needed the bull because they were related in the fourth and fifth degrees of kinship and also in the fourth degrees of affinity. Fourth degree of kinship was first cousins, fifth degree of kinship was second cousins, and fourth degree of affinity means parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, spouse, children, siblings, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, nieces or nephews, grandnieces or grandnephews, aunts or uncles, great-aunts or great-uncles, and first cousins by virtue of blood relationship or marriage. Or godparents. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah that wasn't mentioned in the list. I, I looked on a, on a legal website. If we go way back, way, way, way yeah, back we have to our very it. first episode, there is a chart on our website. <laughs> <laughs> go to the very first posting of the relations between Henry VII and all the kings and queens and you'll find oh, that chart. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. It's on the episode resources page, something so. or like backgroundy that. stuff. Anyway, go and have a look. I put loads of stuff on this on the website. It'd be nice if somebody looked at it <laughs> again. <laughs> right, I went round around in circles. For a start, why is a spouse included on that list? Mm. Now that was mystifying, and also affinity means consanguinity. But what is the difference between consanguinity and kinship? What's the difference between fourth degree of, cons of consanguinity and fourth degree of kinship? Well, it turns out that kinship is people related by consanguinity, whereas consanguinity is the characteristic of having kinship with a person. So it's exactly the same thing. It's the same thing approached from a different direction, I think. Yes. This was from a legal website, so... You know. Let's go in circles. <laughs> yes. Anyway, I hope that's cleared it all up. <laughs> like mud. Yeah, we can see why so many papal dispensations had to be sent out, given the number of people that would have fitted in the fourth degree of affinity. Were required. And apart from spouse, I don't think I'd want to marry any of them anyway. No. Not great, great, great grand uncle. And, uh, don't think so. 
Edgecombe was at the Battle of Stoke, along with just about everyone else we've come across. Yes. And later that year, he was sent with Bishop Fox to Scotland to try to conclude a negotiation which had been interrupted by the Simnel Affair. Yes. Then, in 1488, was what seems like the big event in Hedgecombe's life. But that may be just that we have... You just called him Hedgecombe. (laughs) Did I? (laughs) He's a hedge! (laughs) Hedgecombe. (laughs) All right, I'll start again. Then, in 1488, was what seems like the big event in Hedgecombe's life. But that might be just that we have his own report in his own words of being sent to Ireland to re-establish Henry's royal authority there. Oh, good luck. Following the crown- crowning of <laughs> the organ maker's son. <laughs> it might be a case that the amount of the resources sort of skews the importance of the event, but <laughs> we have a lot of information about it because he, he tells us about it. I say re-establish Henry's authority, but in fact, Henry was pretty much unknown in Ireland. He was referred to as the son of the Welshman. And whether that was because they didn't know his name or whether it was a bit of a dig at the king... We may have crowned an organ maker's son, but at least he wasn't Welsh. Oh, dear. No. <laughs> I'm going to go with that's the reason. <laughs> they would have been none too happy with Henry anyway, because he was a Lancastrian and Ireland was a Yorkist enclave. As I say, very excitingly, we have his report starting, quote, Here articulately ensueth as well the beginning of the voyage of Sir Henry, I know, of Sir... A- not Edward either. <laughs> Bob, Bill, Walters. <laughs> Twinkle. Twinkle. <laughs> Here articulately ensueth as well the beginning of the voyage of Sir Hen... Now I've done it again. <laughs> of, of Sir... A- Here articulately... You say it. I'll say Edgecombe. It's Robert Edgecombe, right? <laughs> Richard. Richard. (laughs) (laughs) Poor man. Here articulately ensueth as well the beginning of the voyage of Sir Richard Richard Edgecombe, knight, (laughs) send by the King's grace into Ireland and of such communications and conclusions as the said Sir Richard hath made and taking there as also of his return again into England, unquote. So, catchy title there. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Henry hadn't sent Edgecombe to Ireland to castigate the bishops who had presided over the coronation of the so-called Edward VI. He left that to the Pope, and he then waited for the Pope to do all his popey stuff before Henry (laughs) ventured in to deal with the secular political things. And not himself, obviously. He he never went to Ireland. And none of the Tudors went to Ireland. No. No. So it was May 1488 that Edgecombe set off with 500 men. So that's enough men to be quite intimidating, but not enough should it all kick off. No. The purpose of his visit was to make submission and to administer a new oath of allegiance. And he had the power to administer, quote, the sound rule of peace, armed with pardons for those who would submit, and to administer oaths of fealty and allegiance, and to imprison rebels and traitors, unquote. He got a bit sidetracked chasing a pirate on his way there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you do. (laughs) To quote from Edgecombe's report, the said Sir Richard... Everyone talks about themselves in the third person, (laughs) don't they? (laughs) I did begin to wonder whether that was why um, Hilary Mantel always referred to Cromwell as he, rather than I. 
because I come across this a lot in the Spanish roles that somebody writes a letter and refers to himself as he and you think who's this he and then you have to work back hmm. anyway where are we um, pirates pirates the said Sir Richard, hearing that a great Fleming ship of war lay in the River Severn, daily taking and spoiling the king's subjects, made sail, and with all the said ships came into the Severn to the intent to have met with the said Fleming and other rovers with him, which Fleming and rovers were warned, or warned, by diverse of the king's subjects, of the coming of the said Sir Richard to the sea, and absented themselves and fled them thence." Unquote. So, a victory for Sir Richard, uh, of sorts. Except he didn't capture them. No, they ran away. They ran away. Edgecombe first visited the loyal town of Waterford in Ireland, so I think he was easing himself in gently. Since in Kinsale, Dublin and Drogheda and Trim, the authorities did take the required oath, but it was only after long negotiations. And it was only after the wording of the oath had been changed that the Earl of Kildare and several others of the Great Lords consented to sign. But Kildare did sign, even if he kept Edgecombe waiting for over a week, which feels like a bit of a snub for the king's yes. representative. Yes, yes. Kildare wanted to keep his post of deputy lieutenant, so he pretty much had to sign. Edgecombe may have been told to step lightly, since Henry needed Kildare if he were to keep the lid on Ireland. Right. So it was a mutual, mutual thing, really. But they probably—they, I doubt they admitted that. There would have been a lot of blustering and... Posturing, I think, on both sides. Of course. The form of the oaths to be taken was set out in English. Really? Did they all speak English? Yeah. I wondered about whether that caused <laughs> a bit of tension in itself. Yeah. And it went as follows. I become faithful and true liegeman unto King Henry VII, King of England and of France and Lord of Ireland, for life and limb and earthly worship and faith and truth. I shall bear unto him as my sovereign liege lord to live and die against all manner of creatures, so God help me and all his saints. Lots of lies. <laughs> it goes on in the same same vein. I'm not sure about the creatures. It was spelt creators, but neither creators nor creatures really seem to make a lot of sense. No. The original remit for Edgecombe was to enmesh the Irish lords in bonds and recognizances. Of course. Give me money. Yeah, Henry's stock in trade. But strangely, the Irish lords seemed disinclined to agree that they would forfeit all that they owned if they backtracked on the oath. They weren't keen. I don't know, there's no accounting for taste, is there? <laughs> Several of them said that they would reject English rule completely if they were required to include that in the oath, so it was dropped. Oh. Hmm. The Earl of Kildare was asked to go to England to meet the king, but he was a bit busy, apparently. Doing what? So, well... I didn't look into it because we've got him in the box. Rabble-rousing. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, we'll find out in his own episode. OK. It's hard to know what more Henry could have done at this point. Six years later, he sent Poynings, and he had considerably more powers. Yes. But following Stoke, Henry just seemed to want to remind them that he was there and that he was boss and that they owed allegiance to him. He maybe felt he couldn't push it too far because there'd be mass rebellion. Yes, and they did not have the ability to fight mass rebellion at this point. No, they didn't have the time or the money. Nope. But later, he had more money, so yes. he could risk it. Yes. Edgecombe was only in Ireland for five weeks, and one of those was spent hanging around waiting to talk to Kildare. <laughs> <laughs> 
And on the face of it, it doesn't really look as if he accomplished that much. But he had asserted the power of the king, the English king. And the following year, Henry summoned the Irish lords to the English court and all but Desmond and Fitzmaurice came. And no one had expected them to come anyway. And when you think about it, Lambert Simnel was crowned in Dublin in 1485. In 1491, when Perkin turned up, his reception was considerably less enthusiastic, so maybe Henry had made his points. Since it's not settled, I don't think anybody makes the point for Ireland ever. <laughs> no. Yeah, well, it seems odd that English kings never just said to Ireland, fine, you go your own way. Yes. You're just too much trouble. Well, too honestly, if you look at it, the Ireland costs money. It doesn't mm. give the crown anything, ever. But which king would ever do that? Because Henry VI lost land in France, and that was a big part of his unpopularity. Right. Monarchs don't give up territory, especially if a pre previous monarch has won it. Mm. You don't want to be the one that's remembered for losing it again. So you just cling on to it, however expensive it gets. That's dumb. <laughs> well, politics is. In 1489, Edgecombe was dispatched to Brittany, and he was part of a whole diaspora of embassies that Henry sent out to try and save Brittany, with the minimum involvement and expense to himself. Yes. Thomas Savage and Richard Nanfan... Nanfan! ...went to Ferdinand and Isabella, although also they did have a wedding to organise there, and on to the King of Portugal. Christopher Erswick, who was Margaret Beaufort's confessor, went to France... Others were sent to Maximilian and Philip the Fair, and Sir Hen uh, Dr. Henry Ainsworth and Richard Edgecombe were sent to Anne of Brittany. Yay! Their remit in Brittany was one we've seen before. Very generously and altruistically to offer help in the war against France. Oh, and we'll need some fortresses of security to make sure that you redeem your <laughs> pledge to pay for all this stuff later. <laughs> We'll give this to you and we'll help you, but you have to pay for it. Yes, 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 yes. she's like, but I have no money. You've got fortresses. I do. Quite I nice need them. Yes, but England, I think England was quite keen to get their feet back under the table in Brittany, weren't they? Yes. They used to own land there, but it had disappeared. Everybody was. Edgecombe and Ainsworth landed early in the year. They were nearly arrested, but I, that was, I couldn't find any information about that. And then fulfilled all Henry's wishes by getting him a treaty which not only gained the fortresses a security, but also ensured that Anne's marriage and every treaty of alliance she made, except with Maximilian and Spain, would be subject to Henry's approval. Yes. Too bad none of that came about. No, it didn't. But, you know, the thought was there. He wanted Anne to marry the Duke of Buckingham. By the way, Anne is one of our Patreon episodes. Well, now I've got to put the advert in. Episodes. <laughs> Tudoriferous Patreon. Oh, so juicy. She was good. She was, yes. She was, yeah. Interesting woman. Mm hmm. Stamping her foot. But, yeah, it's all very well having a treaty, but it only works if everyone's behind it. Yes. And the Breton government was riddled with factionalism, which made yes. putting up a united front against France pretty much impossible. Especially when some of them were defecting to France. Yes. <laughs> Edgecombe spent much of the year trying to sort out all the feuding factions. 
But Henry was probably quite happy. He liked things that slowed everything down and made them unlikely to happen at all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that suited him perfectly. He didn't want to help Brittany if he could possibly help it because it just got him into problems with France. So Yes. Yes, it did. If Brittany could shoot themselves in the foot, that worked quite nicely for Henry. <laughs> <laughs> and then... In case you're wondering why we don't hear more about Edgecombe, because he's easily up there with Bray and Poinings and yeah. Giles Dobney. He sounds like he's right in the thick of it. 8th of September, 1489, he died in Morlay and was buried in the Dominican church there. So that's the problem. Ah. He died of natural causes just four years into Henry's reign. Yeah, not enough time to really develop the recorded information. Yeah. Hmm. And he wasn't a churchman. No. We have more information about Churchman for some reason. We do. I mean, luckily, he the fact he wrote a report for himself, I mean, he might have gone on to write more reports. He might have written one about Brittany if he'd, he'd yes. lived. Which would been quite useful, actually. Yes. <laughs> yes. Very <laughs> useful. He made a will prior to sailing, as many people did. His son and heir was Peter Edgecombe. I was thinking, have we come across a Peter? No. I can't think of any Peters. No. Which I think there'd be lots, given that there's St. Peter. Yes. He was only 12, but he was already a student at Lincoln's Inn. Oh, he was already in law school. Yeah. Well, he might have been in grammar school. Yeah, he went on to lead a distinguished career, including being present at the Field of the Cloth of Gold. Oh. So we never know, we might come across him in later years. But was he there drinking the wine or was he there in official capacity? <laughs> Don't know. Don't know. I didn't look into Peter too much. <laughs> we might find out later. So that's the story of Sir Richard Edgecombe. And he'd probably got a full episode if he hadn't died so early. Yes. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, he seemed to be in all the right places, didn't he? For... Mm-hmm. I really would have liked him to have written a report for the Anne of Brittany episode. There yeah. was not much on from her side regarding the negotiations with England. Yeah, and he would have been obviously right in there negotiating, so he could have been from the horse's mouth. Yeah. Hey ho. I mean, there might have been one at some point, but not now. Nope. You might have kept a diary. Anyway, any archivists listening, get out there and look for it. <laughs> <laughs> Hurry up! <laughs> yes. Come on, we're waiting. <laughs> well, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>